Hi there, and welcome to a different way of seeing. Have you ever wondered how a disabled person lives their life? Join our host Lois Drachen as she chats to people about work, education, travel, sport, the arts, and leisure, and the tools and techniques they use to live their lives with the disability. And now, on with the show. And welcome to today's episode of A Different Way of Seeing, a podcast where we talk all things impacting on persons with disability. Today we're chatting to Dr. Michelle Borsa. And rather than me giving a long and detailed explanation of who Michelle is and what she does, let's ask Michelle to be there. Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to yeah have the time to chat to you today. Well, I'm really excited to, to hear a little bit about what we're going to be talking about, about paradigms and frameworks of thinking around the topic of disability, because that's an area of study for you, I think. Yes, yes, it is. So, um, yeah, just to give a little background to, to me, I am Cape Town, born and bred, and um, I have a, a visual impairment. Um, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa when I was two, which is a progressive um, condition. And over the past 10 years, I've, I've experienced um, very changing vision, vision that has um, become increasingly uh, less usable to me. Um, and I think it's, it's really my experience as someone with a disability that, that sort of drew me into the career that I am now pursuing, which is in the academic space mainly. Um, I, I was drawn to the field of disability studies as, as a you know, young undergraduate student. And that was a really you know, important time in my life where some of the things that we're gonna speak about today around um, the way that disability is viewed suddenly I was being exposed to that and I was being able to, you know, I was, I was given access to thinking about theories of disability and thinking about how is disability thought of in the world and how does that make a difference to my life as a person with a disability? So that was a really, um, yeah, important time for me, um, you know, not just academically, but, but in my own personal, in my own personal life. Um, and, and yeah, so I'm, I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at Stellenbosch University in the Center for Disability and Rehabilitation Studies. Um, my work, my research work is very focused on the area of blindness and visual impairment and, and rehabilitation, thinking about how people who um, experience sight loss later in life, how they experience rehabilitation programs, how those programs might shape their sense of self um, and their their identities. Um, I've also had some experience working in the nonprofit space as well, and worked for several years as a job placement officer um, at a local organisation where I assisted youth with visual impairment to enter employment. So, in that sense, I, I often feel like I've got a foot in in the academic world, but I still have a foot firmly planted in the um, yeah, the more sort of ground level disability world when it comes to the provision of services and the, the nonprofit sector. I think that's important because that gives you the academic approach, but it also gives you the real world lived experiences. And I think sometimes if we're talking academia, if we're talking theoretical abstract knowledge, it's very important to have that the research, the backing, but there's also that very important aspect of how um, does that play out in the lived experiences of persons with disabilities. So I think that having a foot in both camps and both, both experiences gives you a very rounded uh, sense of, a, a very much more holistic sense 
of what the real situation is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's so important, and I, I hope that that's something we'll do in our conversation today, is really take these ideas that are abstract, you know, that can be quite, um, that can also feel quite inaccessible um, in the sense that they they can be sort of shrouded in that that sort of academic, academic-y kind of language, and, and they can feel, you know, Oh, it's a lot of effort to kind of wade through all of that. I hope we can we can take those ideas and actually think about how how they um, have implications for people's real lives and real experiences. And I do think there is there's so much room for the the academic space and the activist space to to talk and to find ways to communicate and to kind of sit down together and speak the same language. I think sometimes we miss each other. Um, and that's really problematic. So, yeah, I hope we can we can speak to that today. Yeah, I think it's so important to to do that. Both approaches, both perspectives are crucially important. And finding a way to all work together to solve the reality of the situations. That, that sounds so like abstract and up in the air, doesn't it? But it really is. It's, it's one of those situations. There are real life challenges that we face and there is a wider context in which those occur. So we need to all work together to find solutions and move forward. But rather than talking about that type of thing, maybe we need to take a step back and look at some of the frameworks, some of the, the paradigms of thinking, talking about disability. So what can you tell us about those? Because I think this is something that can cause so much controversy and so much confusion. And I'd really like us to try and unpack a little bit about what those main ways of talking, ways of thinking are, and then look at how they play out. So we need to start with the theory. Sure. So I think first it's important just to sort of say, what do we mean by paradigm? You know, even that in itself is like, you know, a, a tricky word to, to, you know, think about. What is that? What are we talking about here today? Um, so I think a way to, to understand that is, is we're talking about how disability is viewed and how it is approached. And that can mean um, how it is theorized in, in you know, academic work, theories of disability, what is disability, what is disabling. Um, but it also speaks to broader things. How do we teach about disability? Um, how do we train our healthcare providers and our health professionals about disability? What ideas surround that? How do we teach our children in schools about what disability is? Um, and then how do how are our policies made? What informs our disability legislation? Um, what informs you know an employer's view of disability? So so there's a lot that you know that this speaks to. Um, but where we start. And well, where I'm going to start as, as I kind of speak to these things is, is at a theoretical space. So how has disability been theorized? What, what ideas have shaped um, views on disability? So I've picked out three to speak about today and just to share a little bit about. There, there are more, arguably, um, but these are, are some big big ideas. And they will be familiar to the initiated, um, but they might be very new to people who are not involved in, in the disability sector, both academically or, or in the activist space or the service provision space. So the first that I want to speak about, and it's often where we, where we start in disability studies, it's, it's often the, the point of departure for us, is we talk about something called the medical model of disability. Sometimes it's been called the personal tragedy model or the welfare or charity model of disability. Now, this says that 
disability is a problem of the individual body. That's how disability is understood or theorized within this view. It's a problem of the individual body, and it's a problem that either needs to be cured, fixed, made better, or if it can't be cured, fixed, or made better through, through medical intervention, then it needs to be either cared for or rehabilitated to a point where we're able to integrate it back into society in some way. And if it can't be integrated back, then it needs to be um, set aside. So within an institutional context, um, there is no space then for that that body to participate. So the medical model is very much about um, thinking about the body as as a problem. Um, there is a phrase that's used that says, you know, in this view, disability is about bodies that have gone wrong. Um, it's very individual. So it's based on, again, thinking about individual bodies. And it is based on um, the idea that disabled people require the goodwill of, of the rest of society. So whether that's informal charity or whether it's saying, you know, if, if this person is employed, it's because they're being given a chance by an employer. So the idea is that disabled people have bodies that are not functioning optimally and they need to receive goodwill and welfare. Um, so what so are some of the implications of this way of seeing disability? You know, out, out in the real world, I can see all sorts of problematic situations that come up if disabilities, if, if we as disabilities are seen as being broken, as being less than. Is that exactly. the kind of thinking that informs that? Exactly. So, so we call this the medical model um, because it, the, these ideas have often been attributed to the medical profession. Um, now, a, a quick note on that is to say, just because this is called the medical model, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're saying that medicine is bad or medical professionals are bad or um, health professionals are bad. Not at all. Um, what we are saying is that there are some problematic ideas about people with disabilities that are rooted in traditional um, approaches in, in these spheres of medicine, charity, and, and welfare. And, it's, and it has massive implications. I mean, we can think about, as I mentioned earlier, what does it mean for a young medical student or health professional student, physio, OT, um, to be taught about disability in this way, um, to be um, sort of given the idea that people with disabilities are sort of inherently needy. <laughs> um, and, and another issue with the medical model is that people with disabilities have no voice within this approach. They are not viewed as, as the experts in their own lives. So, so the medical model establishes very clear boundaries between who the experts are, who's allowed to know what people need. And those experts are your, your medical practitioners or your rehabilitation workers. They get positioned as the experts who know what people with disabilities need. And people with disabilities have no voice um, in this process. They are not um, included as stakeholders in, in their own health or rehabilitation or, or development. So there are massive implications um, also for how, how society in general views people with disabilities. You know, if, if, yeah, because well, exactly. if, so, if a child is growing up taught that a, a child or a person with a disability is less than, then how do we ever work to be seen as inclusive, productive members of society. If society and if the, the thinking is that, oh, a person with a disability is incapable, unable, and dependent on others. So there are huge implications in terms of not just the way how society sees us, but also through that because of pervasiveness of societal thinking, how we see ourselves. 
And I can see that exactly. it's highly problematic. Exactly. And and if if disability is is on me, if, if that makes sense. So if if it's my visual impairment that is the barrier, then there is no um there's no responsibility on society to do anything about that. Um, except to treat me with goodwill. Um, so to, you know, be kind to me if, if they feel like it, basically. There, there's no, society bears no responsibility then for, for my inclusion, which I think takes us quite nicely on to, to the second idea um, that I want to speak about. Right. Which, let's, let's move on to that one. <laughs> so this is an idea that, again, the initiated in the disability sector will be very familiar with. Um, it's, it's the social model, what we call the social model. It's also been called the British social model because it's, it's connected very closely to a, a political movement of people with disabilities in the UK, um, which started gaining momentum in the 70s and on into the 1980s. Um, so it, it has a long uh, history. Um, this is not a new idea, <laughs> but what I find when, when I've spoken about this, especially to people who don't have knowledge in the disability sector, this is a sort of transformative idea um, for people. So what does the social model say? It says that disability is not an individual issue, so it's not the body gone wrong, but it's actually a political issue. So what the social model does as a theory is it draws a very clear distinction between impairment and disability. So it says that impairment is the, um, is the, the bodily issue. So my visual impairment is is the fact that I cannot see as as you know sighted people do that's the impairment but disability is something quite different the social model says that disability is socially constructed so disability is imposed on people with impairments by an inaccessible world so suddenly the whole the whole idea shifts around what disability is and what is disabling so quite suddenly, it's not my um, visual impairment that disables me. It is the inaccessible environment. It is the lack of accessible public transport or the way that a building is designed or when I'm in a presentation and the presenter doesn't explain the images on the screen, that is that is disabling. So the idea that's often used is, is the idea of a barrier, a disabling barrier, um, these things that have been set up and constructed in society um, that prevent people from participating. So with the social model, suddenly there is responsibility on society. Society is responsible for disability. Disability becomes an issue of human rights, an issue of discrimination. We have the term disablism, which is akin to racism or sexism. It falls into the same bracket as social, you know, other social discrimination that prevents people from participating. So you can kind of see the the how valuable this certainly was for disabled people and, and probably continues to be. Um, you know, in my early disability studies life as a 20-something um, who had never encountered these kinds of ideas, this was this was huge for me. I mean, this was, this was massive. Um, because suddenly, you know, your ideas about yourself, um, change and there's an issue of human rights. You know, I was in a conversation with someone actually just this week, um, also with a visual impairment. And she was talking about starting her university days and saying, I never knew about human rights. And suddenly I was exposed to this whole discourse about myself and I realized oh <laughs> I have human rights like I have rights as a person with a disability the, the the last thing to say about the social model is that 
it doesn't just talk about physical barriers. So the 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 sort of environmental um, barriers that people with disabilities face, you know, the inaccessible building um, or the the um, inaccessible transport or, or social spaces. It also talks about attitudinal barriers. So barriers in people's attitudes towards disability. So it makes a little link between negative attitudes and and inaccessible and disabling barriers. And that's that's quite key. Um, and, and we'll talk about that a bit more, I think, as we as we move on. I can almost see that as the medical model evolved into the social model, the same happened in terms of attitudes and perceptions towards disability in, in terms of people's attitudes. Because for me, just as previously, if, if we were believed to be broken and needing of help in terms of the social model suddenly we're seen as the 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 attitudes and the problems that come up are around the way that others it's it's around the focus of where the barriers lie that one says exactly as individuals as persons with disabilities and then instead of that the social model is now saying there is an element in which the environment and the context is the barrier that is causing a problem exactly and that changes the landscape so there's a great quote um, from a disability studies scholar um, very well known tom shakespeare from the uk um, and he has a, a great book called Disability Rights and Wrongs, where he, he unpacks a lot of um, these paradigms. And he says of the social model that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but suddenly persons with disabilities didn't have to feel sorry for themselves. They could be angry. And that speaks to the, the massive political movement that happened. And I don't think in South Africa we have seen this happen. But in the UK, there was a massive um, sort of uprising, you know, for want of a better word, of of disabled activists, and and changes happened. Um, there were changes towards, you know, independent living rather than residential, you know, institutionalized care. Um, there was a growth in direct payment systems where people with disabilities were getting direct payments from the government, um, where they could sort of manage their own services and their own care, you know, out of their own funds that they were receiving. Um, so there were massive changes. And in South Africa, the, the social model, you know, it informs a lot of our policy because our policies are linked, you know, our disability legislation is connected to the UNCRPD, um, which is informed by this view. But we haven't seen that same level of sort of large-scale, massive political mobilization of disabled people. Um, and I'm not sure we we can quite imagine what that moment must have been like um, where disabled people were actually coming together and organizing um, and mobilizing around this idea that actually society needs to take responsibility for how we are blocked from participating. The, the third idea that I want to speak about is, is a broad one, and I'm going to use the phrase critical disability um, theory or critical disability studies. Um, and this, this includes a number of, of different approaches and a number of, um, you know, in terms of the academic space, a number of different scholars with, with different interests. So to, to make it uh, simple, the, the social model, um, as we've said, it's, it's thought of, um, it's often called the big idea in, in disability. Um, but in the 90s and, and early 2000s and, and moving forward, there were several um, scholars from, from different um, academic disciplines with an interest in disability who kind of said, okay, this is great. I mean, the social model, it's, it's huge. It's, it's got so much 
um, value. But is that all? You know, has <laughs> have we solved disability inequality? Um, you know, is the problem of disability now solved by the social model and we can all just move on? <laughs> And and they say, well, no, we think there's, you know, there's there's more to talk about here. There's more than than socially constructed barriers. And and there's more to disability experience. So critical disability studies includes people, for example, who are interested in language and representation, um, who look at literature and say, how is disability represented? And what does that do? Um, it is. It includes a, a large number of um, disability uh, feminist disability um, scholars who say, "Okay, um, what about you know care? What about women's roles um, in the disability space? What about you know looking at different um, you know different intersections of identity with disability? You know, I'm disabled, but I am a woman." I am disabled, but you know, you know so looking at, at that complex landscape, um, there are scholars from psychology who say, well, what about, you know, we're talking about the, the physical impact of um encountering a disabling barrier, but what does that do internally? What's happening at the sort of psychological and emotional level in the lives of disabled people? who are excluded and um, who are facing daily exclusion. Um, another thing that, that is often argued in, in critical disability theory is that what underpins the, the barriers? So the social model identifies that, that um, barriers to participation are socially made, they're socially constructed. But the question is, why? <laughs> Yeah. What what makes them so powerful? What strengthens? What makes disablism so pervasive and persistent? Um, you know, we can look at our our own legislation, for example, in South Africa. As I said, you know, influenced quite heavily by the United Nations Convention um, and that idea of of socially you know made barriers. And our our legislation, you know, looks pretty nifty. <laughs> But why does, you know, why does exclusion persist? If, if you know, if, if there wasn't something more going on, then society recognizing, oh, you know, we're, we're actually producing the disabling conditions. That's a bad thing. You know, then, then those things would change, surely. So, so what this sort of approach or, or view does is it takes us deeper and it kind of forces us to ask deeper questions. And that can be really uncomfortable <laughs> um, because it is tempting to kind of go, oh, well, we saw the medical model. That wasn't great. And then we saw the social model and that was really exciting. And we were really excited about that. But now you're telling me it's not, you know, there's more. <laughs> we're not done. So yeah. we're not done. Exactly. So, it can take us into quite a tricky space. There's a lot of internal debate in disability studies um, around, you know, whether these approaches are, are appropriate, whether it's a good thing to talk about emotional and psychological struggles or whether that actually just takes us right back to the medical model. Um, so, so there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of discussion and sometimes quite heated debate in this space about uh, you know, whether we should be taking these things further. My personal view is that it's actually crucial um, to get a, a full understanding of what people with disabilities are experiencing in the world. And for me as a person with a disability to actually fully understand myself and my own experience and my own feelings, there is a need to, to think about more than than physical barriers. So just to mention um, another um, really helpful piece of work, well, something that I found really helpful, there is a um, disability studies um, and feminist uh, writer called Rosemary Garland Thompson, who, who has a very helpful idea in disability, and, and she calls it misfitting. 
Um, and when she talks about misfitting, she's talking about an experience that all of us as people with disabilities can relate to. You know, moving through the world and and you're, you're going along and it's it's all fine and then suddenly encountering something that makes you go, oh, I, I don't fit. I'm, I'm, you know, this is, this is uncomfortable. I've, I've encountered a barrier and that barrier could be physical. It could be attitudinal. And, and it's not to say that you're misfitting all the time. Yeah. You move in and out of fitting and misfitting. And in fact, her arguments, which is really helpful, is that everyone does, not yeah. just people with disabilities. We are all fitting and misfitting. I think the example she uses is the, the woman standing up in the boardroom, you know, and the, the barriers she might encounter there, um, you know, that is a misfit. She may not have a disability. Um, and and that's, that encompasses, you know, as I said, not just the physical barriers, but, but representations, you know, encountering a representation of yourself as something negative. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, if, if you've had the experience of sitting around a dinner table, having a lovely time, and suddenly someone says something around blindness or disability or shares a joke that just doesn't land or is inappropriate, and suddenly you you feel, oh, there's something, something's shifted here. Um, and that's what she would describe as a, as a misfit, which I think is a, a really helpful idea. Yes, it's, it's an interesting one to think about, and I, I would definitely agree with you that we're not alone in shifting between fitting and misfitting as, as persons with disabilities. I think it's something that does happen in almost any area of life, any area of identity, but it's a very useful lens through which to perceive connection and disconnection, I suppose. Yeah. But I'm still yeah. left with a sense that identifying the problems is one thing, but actually removing them, shifting beyond them, yeah. that's almost where I see the greatest problem coming in. Because no matter how you look at disability, our realities are such that we do experience barriers, be they real physical barriers or attitudinal barriers. So how do we actually bring that down into leveling playing field, becoming more inclusive? Mm. No, exactly. And and that's I think that's the importance of this this critical disability view that says, you know, something else is going on. Um, something else is happening here that is giving disabled discrimination potency. So, I mean, I think there's several things. Firstly, I think there is a need to engage as people with disabilities and with people with disabilities around these issues. I think so many people, and I, I think of my, my younger self again, um, have, have no understanding of, you know, how they are viewed in society and why, and why that's problematic. And, and on one level, you know, why should we? Because we're actually all just trying to, you know, survive. <laughs> um, but there's, I think there's a, a real need for, for that level of, of understanding um, of, you know, this is, this is why I experience discrimination and it's, it's not okay. Um, and being able to, you know, engage with each other on those issues, I think builds a sort of a sense of community identity or, or, you know, collective, a sort of collective consciousness. I know that sounds a bit wifty-wifty, um, around, you know, around how we're socially positioned and, and um, you know, then being able to, yeah, I guess to, to advocate for ourselves as well. And I think there's a great need to for education. Um, 
you know, because I, I can I can see this in, in so many different ways. I can see partial solutions and and partial, I suppose, responsibility. But ultimately, and we agreed to park this conversation that to a degree, without that sense of unified action as a community, we lack a single voice or the power of our unified voices to start creating shifts. Because there's certain work that could be done at uh, systems level, at governmental level, and very probably is being done. But then there's also implementation into society. There's societal perceptions. And each of those probably needs to be tackled in a slightly different way to really start making our world totally inclusive. It is an incredibly complex problem. And a really it's an challenging approach. Yeah. And I think when we when we come down to you know thinking about um the very deep-seated way that disabled discrimination is actually rooted in in the minds of non-disabled people in 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 a psychological way you know then we really get to the point of going wow um how how do we address that and i think there is so much need for i mean for for education and for opportunities for our children to to engage across across disability to engage with diversity because i think at that stage there is so much opportunity to grow empathy to grow understanding and we miss this opportunity all the time um you know currently in our i've recently had an opportunity to have a look at life skills curriculum in south africa and you know how disability is represented there and if it's represented there and and it really isn't there's nothing explicit about disability in our curriculum and and if it's left you know if it's if it's to the teacher's discretion you know one must wonder what is going to be taught um you know you might have someone who ha- can really engage with disability in this in this way but you are more likely to to have kids being taught in that sort of welfare model way you know you must be good to people with disabilities don't stare at them um be nice to them donate to organizations you know that's good citizenship or whatever but that also um, comes out in, in, in other ways, socially. Uh, if you think of books that were written in or the way disability was portrayed in books written in the 19th century, 18th century, yes. and, and that was probably at a time where the medical model did determine much of the approach to disability, where now we're still seeing that because people read those books and are impacted on, they're affected, their thinking is affected by the way there are very few characters with disabilities that are represented in literature, the way they are represented. And it's interesting to see that in, in, in terms of literature of and, and movies, uh, TV, magazines, how much that impacts on people's thinking. People who haven't got a personal knowledge or are con- are contact with disability. It's, a, it's as I said, I, I keep coming back to the it's mm. an incredibly complicated, complex situation that yeah. it's gonna take a long time, sadly, I think, to really address and move beyond totally. But I do believe that it's doable. Yeah, and it's generational as well. You know, I, I think there are ideas that are, you know, passed down from generation to generation. Um, and and disability ideas, that is one set of of ideas, and not just within families, 
But also if we look at, um, again, training of, of medical professionals, you know, what ideas are being passed down from, from the older generation of teachers? And I guess how do we, and, and once again, I think it comes down to education and, and, you know, injecting this kind of disability studies critical perspective into training modules, which is a work in progress. But, you know, if that doesn't happen, then those ideas will just get, you know, re, um, recycled and passed on. And, and, you know, there is that, that generational, um, idea. And I mean, in my own life, I find my, uh, the, the people who I grew up with, um, have, have a far superior sort of disability sense. And it's very intuitive. You know, nothing was, they weren't taught anything, <laughs> you know, but, but they have this very intuitive disability understanding. And it's simply from interacting with me <laughs> over the years. Um, so I think there's, yeah, there's much to be said about making sure that there's spaces like that where, where people can, you know, interact. And I mean, thinking about what you were just saying about, you know, representations, we also need to say, what does it do to a person with a disability when we see ourselves mirrored like that? Yes. Because, because it is, it is a mirror. We are, you know, we're seeing ourselves reflected. What does that do to our sense of self? What do we, yeah. What do we internalize when we see images? And it, it might not even be, you know, they might not always be negative images. Um, what do I do as someone who might be struggling in my disability um, identity or, or, or in my life with disability in some way, you know, seeing the sort of requirement for the sort of triumphant overcoming um, disabled figure. I, I often say, you know, disability is represented in two ways. Either it's the overcoming triumphant you know, brilliant person who's climbed a mountain or done something amazing, or it's the sad, unfortunate, you know, figure of charity or, you know, there's very seldom middle ground. Which is there's very seldom, exactly. Like we're all just doing our best. Yes. Like some days are great and some days are really not great. So, so where is the mirror for me of, of just a person doing their life and having, you know, struggles and triumphs and sadness and happiness and, you know, the whole spectrum of emotions. Um, I think that's, that's quite a problem in, yeah, in, yeah. in our world. And I, I think maybe that's, a, 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 again, a topic that I need to take note of for another episode of the podcast is, you know, that that kind of um, mirror and, uh, again, digression. Note it down, <laughs> move on. But, Michelle, <laughs> I want to ask you, how do we then, as people living in a world that the expectations of others can differ widely, whether it's informed by the medical model, the social model, the, the critical disability thing, you know, whichever model that it's coming from, how do we as a person, an individual with a disability, how do we navigate that world ourselves? I think for me, and this is really tricky, we need to have great empathy for those around us and that can be that can be really hard when you know it's something i've been i've been practicing or trying to practice recently because i think when i was younger i was very quick to become conflictual and aggressive um and you know i was a young student and you know rah 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 <laughs> Um, you know, in that headspace. But, you know, when I encounter, for example, someone in maybe the rehabilitation profession who, 
you know, has a, a view of disability that feels problematic to me, my first response or what I hope and, and try to be my first response is empathy because how, how can people know better if they have not been taught? Um, and and that's, a, that's a really tricky space. As I say, it's, it's hard to do. But I think the understanding that, you know, people are, are raised in, in these ideas, whether it's through their schooling or, or the things they've seen on, you know, in the media or their training or whatever it is. So I think there's a great need for, for empathy. I think there's a great need for difficult conversations with, um, you know, whether those are informal or more professional. Um, and I think, yeah, as persons with disabilities to navigate this, this space, I also think we need to be, um, yeah, we also need to hold empathy for ourselves as well, because we're not always going to be great at this. You know, I think there's a careful balance between, um, you know, I guess the, the caveat I want to put on that is by saying, you know, we need to hold empathy for other people. Um, you know, that's without saying uh, we just need to go, oh, well, <laughs> what more can we expect? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there needs to be room for, uh, you know, we for activism and for a human rights approach to disability, absolutely, 100%. Um, but I think we also need to... Um, yeah, understand where these things come from and that they are often happening very unconsciously for, I mean, they may not always be unconscious, but for for the people in our lives, some of the things that, that we encounter are, are very unconscious. You know, when someone says to me, um, I don't really see you as blind, that for me is actually quite an uncomfortable thing to hear because I, I feel like I've fought very hard to be a blind person and to, you know, build this positive blind identity. So when you say to me, I don't see you as blind, then I, I actually bristle, but I've got to, you know, I could snap, but it's more helpful for me to say, to actually understand where that's coming from and when it's appropriate to have a conversation about that. That topic of ought we to be advocates 24 hours a day is a very, very tough one because oh, yeah, we should be allowed to just be people because we are just people. But living in a world exactly. where often we are seen as different or other or marginalized or, yeah, it is... I think I've said this probably a hundred times, no, not quite a hundred, but it's such a complex situation. And I suppose we have to deal with each situation as it comes up and navigate it as best we can. And I, I like the fact that, yes, we need to be empathetic to the fact that people don't understand our situation as well as we do, or sometimes at all but they're also trying to navigate a situation that is complicated for them. So I, I, I do like to focus on empathy and yes, there are times that it's hard. So also that empathy on ourselves. So I, I like that approach. Thank you for sharing that. I want to end off the, the, the chats today with a, 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 a very quick Three, two, one, which is something that I want to make as a, a standard part of the podcast. So we're going to be asking you three questions and just quick answers to those. Mm -hmm. So oh, before we get to the three, two, one, because I think this is also important. Michelle, if people would like to find out more about you, if they'd like to chat to you about the work that you're doing or about looking at resolving some of the challenges that are being faced, how can people reach you? Sure. So I am quite social media averse, but you can find me on, on my LinkedIn profile and you're welcome to contact me that way. 
there are about a gazillion Michelle Borges on the internet. <laughs> it's a very popular name, apparently. <laughs> um, so if you do if you do a search, you might want to just pop uh, Stellenbosch University or um, postdoctoral research fellow um, in that search, and I, I should pop up. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best way to to get in touch. You can also um, search for some of my published work on uh, Google Scholar. Um, again, Michelle Buerta and blindness or disability will probably do the trick there. Um, yeah, so those those would be the ways to to see some of my work or to get in touch. I I really loved that because you realise that you're working with an academic someone who's used to finding the challenges of searching for things and knowing the terms <laughs> that are necessary to make certain that you arrive at the correct information. So that's a lovely way of putting it. Thank you, Michelle. In the interview, you probably heard me mentioning the three, two, one that I did with Michelle. I thought about releasing it with the podcast, but I thought it would make this episode a little bit too long. So what I decided to do is release that as bonus content. You'll hear more about how to access the bonus content within the next month or so. So keep listening to the podcast for more details, or you can hop on to my Facebook page, which is Lois Strachan Speaker or Lois Strachan A Different Way of Seeing, and you'll be amongst the first to know about that bonus content. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already done so, we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes, because that'll really help us to reach more listeners. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to A Different Way of Seeing. We would love to connect with you. So find Lois at loisstrachen.com or Facebook, Lois Strachan Speaker. This podcast was edited by Craig Strachan using Hindenburg Pro. Hindenburg, it's all about the story. The credits are done at Naledi Media. Naledi Media, all your vocal needs under one roof. Read by Charlie Yassi. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us and see you next time when we bring you into the world of seeing differently.